Hello, Steve Edelman here, and welcome to another edition of the TCOYD podcast. I'm really sad today because my partner in crime, Jeremy Pettis, who has a huge interest in type 1, is not here today, but we do have Monsi Jammin, who is a pediatric endocrinologist that has traversed the field of clinical medicine in the pediatric area to some pretty hardcore research in the area of type 1. So I want to start off, welcome, and thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. First of all, um, what drew you to being a pediatric endocrinologist. For all our listeners, you know, when you go to medical school, you have choices of everything from psychiatry to the best field, endocrinology. But how did you end up in pediatrics? Well, you know, when I, um, I guess in middle school almost, I was really interested in science and I didn't, I was always kind of pulled that way. My mom's a, a teacher, professor in chemistry, physics. So there was always that background. However, it was not until I was exposed to family member illnesses. So there's, I guess, all things pancreas in our family, both sides, Uh, pancreatic cancer. um, Initially, it was insulin requiring type 2 diabetes. And then we started having extended family members with type 1 diabetes. And at that time, I obviously didn't understand what the complications and the burden and the differences were. But I knew that they had to do a lot. Um, and just knowing that, uh, and then also just knowing science and my love for that, I was like, well, it makes sense. I should do something about it and I should learn more about it. Um, and that led me to medical school. Uh, and then from medical school, I realized, you know, I learned more obviously, and I saw the, the patient population that I was drawn to and they were pediatric patients because they're so resilient. They are so incredibly resilient. They could be in the hospital for weeks getting chemotherapy, but they will want to play basketball the minute that they have any little bit of energy. And um, and they're so grateful for just small things. And it reminded me of, of just how to approach any situation. And so that's how I was drawn to peds. And then obviously endocrinology was always there. I just didn't know how to get there. And once I was in pediatrics, it was a clear clear path for me. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always thought about... you. You see those young kids that come down with leukemia, they yeah. lose their hair, and they they are inspirational. So that, well, uh, just, I want to just briefly, since we're talking about your interest, I want to talk a little bit about research at the end of the podcast, but how did you make the jump from being a, a clinical pediatric endocrinologist, you trained at some pretty prestigious places back east, to getting into some pretty hardcore research? Mm-hmm. So I actually, so going into fellowship, part of the fellowship is you do clinical, but you also have to do research. And for me, I was always interested in the front end of the innovative side of of management in general. So I knew I was going to go into endocrinology, and I also wanted to be part of how to change management. And I, you know, part of the things you learn when you join a fellowship is what you're capable uh, of doing and what are what's out there to be a part of. And I learned probably day two of fellowship, that there were were trials going on in the artificial pancreas space. And that was it. That's all I needed to hear. And I was like, as soon as I heard it, I read it, I was in. And um, and then I hounded the PI at that time, Stephen Russell, for about a year, um, <laughs> uh, just emailing him persistently. I was like, listen, I have to do research and you want me. Um, and I basically didn't accept no for an answer. And when he was able to take a fellow on, um, which was when I started my second year. He, um, I was his first fellow, and uh, and I've never looked back. That's literally what led me into research, 
and I stayed with them uh, as an attending and um, still doing some clinical, but also uh, heavily weighed in on research because I really wanted to be part of that. Um, and then I realized, you know, what I needed to do was do it at a bigger scale. They were doing great. Tri clinical trials were moving forward. And I said, what else can I do? Because I still had this urge to continue to be part of the change. So um, that led me to the next steps. And for me, it was, okay, let's see what biotech has to offer. And I'm, I'm very methodical. You've probably already seen that with our in interactions. But I, um, I went into Covance, which is a CRO, as a residency, essentially, of how to learn about different biotechs and industry and pharma. Because well, I yeah, know there's a lot of learning. Explain what a CRO is, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's a contract research organization. And so basically, uh, companies of different sizes uh, go to a CRO uh, and ask them to run their research trials. And there's different components of that, but that's the basics. And then we run the clinical trials. We get to be a part of you know the entire inception to execution. And um, one thing that's really exciting for me at that time was I got to learn large pharma, small pharma, biotech, but it was all within the diabetes space. And as, as, as a medical director, you saw the protocols, you probably had feedback. I did. Yep. I interact with the, all the um, doctors that were responsible for the clinical trials at the different sites. Um, yeah, I wrote protocols. Um, I did a lot of the, the medical pieces that were required reviewing things that came in from patients. But um, for the most part, it was I was at the forefront of a lot of like really cool things in medical devices as well as therapies. Well, you know, Monty, um, you know, I, I was a fellowship director for adult endocrinology uh, trainees and, um, you know, they run the gamut. Some people just like yourself, but not too many. No, right away they want to really get into some hardcore research, and it's think. And times have changed these days. You know, most most of our fellows now are really geared towards clinical medicine. Yeah. But every once in a while, someone gets an interest halfway through, and then they end up, you know, doing a little bit along the same lines as you've been doing. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of the future of type one. But I wanted to ask you probably one of the most important questions I wanted to ask you. You know, being type one myself. Uh, uh, diagnosed as a teenager, I, th I think well, before we talk about actual hardcore advice like CGMs and things, you know, how do you approach how, what parents of newly diagnosed kids and and a young child and even a teenager, if if those approaches are different, they have to be a little bit, you know, words of comfort, encouragement, mm -hmm. and hope, you know, because as I don't have to tell you that uh, when people are diagnosed with type one, their world changes, and then. Every parent's thinking, oh, my kid's going to go blind. Mm -hmm. They're going to lose their limbs. They're going to be on dialysis. So what's your approach there? And, and a lot of people are listening. You know, I think um, it's the number one, two, and three thing for me is empathy. Um, that's it. it. You approach it with extreme empathy because you don't know what each family's situation is. You don't know, especially with different age groups, um, the kids will respond differently. Families have their own situations. I mean, we all have crazy lives with different complications. And now you're adding a minute by minute burden, essentially, to your entire life. So it's it's there's already life. And then there is this extreme change. That's it's it's so overwhelming. And um, I try to listen first. Um you know, I think that it goes a long way. Even if I have to listen for two, three hours at a time, someone's come in and they had to be hospitalized, say, um, this happened. And I went in, I said, let's talk. Um, 
you know, this is likely type 1 diabetes. When they're first in, we have to run all the tests to confirm that. But, um, but I said, what do you know? I want to hear first what they know before I give them any education. Um, because then you understand the level of what they're coming in with. And you understand a lot, of the, a lot of parents will cry or a lot of parents will just not know what to say. They're in shock. And when they're in that state, I can't approach them with anything. What I want to make sure is they know is, listen, I'm here. I'm here 24 hours a day. So here's my cell phone. Call me when you're ready. I'll bring my team in. We'll make sure, especially when they're hospitalized, no one wants to hear anything. They want to make sure their kid's going to be okay and then the education will follow. Yeah, <laughs> they're not really in the learning mode no. when they're going through shock like that. And and how many how many parents have you seen that are super knowledgeable about type one, unless they already had a kid with type one? That's usually the case. Yeah, and that's that's um that's got to be one of the hardest things, you know. And I know that it takes a while to sink in. And I think that's such good advice. Find out where they're coming from, and you know, even saying what what are your biggest concerns at this point, mm-hmm. and finding out from their side. Now, um, what what do you tell parents uh, or caregivers what to expect what to expect on a day to day basis when their child comes down with type one? Because their I, life changes. <laughs> oh, completely, and I think it's um it's different per age group. Um, so a young child. Um, say, you know, I break it down into different groups. So someone who's like under five because they start going to school after five, right? So under five, they're diagnosed. Um, it's, it's, it's basically you have a toddler and now you're running after them for multiple other reasons. And so the care and the burden is solely on the parents at this time, at least until they're teenagers. And even then, it just depends on the family situation. And I, I, I think the one thing I always remind families and parents and caregivers is here's the number. You don't do this alone. You won't be able to do this alone. Um, And it takes time. And so regardless, I mean, that's across the board at any age. But young kids, it's the parents, the caregivers, responsibility at all times. But I try to make sure they have the tools they need to get through it. Yeah, you know, I I can only imagine, um, you know, I'm thinking about our diabetes clinic for kids over yeah. at Rady's Children's. And, you know, there's so many uh, folks there to help these patients, dietitian, social worker, mm-hmm. um, you know, clinical psychologist, you know, the medical person. And I can, I, my heart goes out to people that don't have those resources. Yeah. And so one is resources. Do you have the finances to buy all the things that you need? And then second is access to good health care. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's super tough if you don't have support. Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, I was lucky enough to be in Boston during training and during the time that I was doing all my clinical until recently. And um, there are resources there. You're right. There's an entire team. But I think what's important is that now there's the digital age where you have these you have access online. But people need to know that it's available, that these resources are available, that certain companies will even send you uh, insulin or pump parts or pumps, um, CGMs um, based on your socioeconomical status, too. You know, so but people just don't have that education. So that piece is so important to get out outside of these larger uh, academic cities. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I having the online community is tremendously helpful, but the parents have to be able to get online and sift in that and suck up all that information. Um, You mentioned CGM and I I think my perspective, and it could be different. I'm an adult person, but um, the adult endocrinologist, you know, act as a kid a lot of times, but um, 
What's your feeling towards CGM? And, you know, I've heard crazy things like making people wait for six months, like they're not ready for that technology. You might be one of those. I doubt it, but what's your feeling towards CGM? And how soon should a newly diagnosed kid get one? So I will say this. um, When I first started training, that was actually the norm. You wait three months, four months. But at that time, we didn't have the a the number of CGMs available or the accuracy that they have. Now, I want them to learn within a week the basic skill set that they need to be able to take blood sugars. But at the same time, they're diagnosed. I want to start working on all the things that need to go around getting them a CGM. So through their insurance. So it should be in parallel as soon as you're diagnosed. Honestly, the accuracy they have, the decrease in burden that's so absolutely needed early on, they should get it as soon as possible. And we have the technology. That's the crazy thing. Some of these CGMs are like at least 20% more accurate than a meter that they're using. Yeah, and also, I mean, you get a number every five minutes and you get trend arrows, you get alerts and alarms. So even if it's not quite as accurate it's way more helpful i mean i mean when i think about uh, a kid coming down with type one they say okay now you got to take injections and then you have to like follow a diet cut out your sweets watch the carbs and what do you do when you get too high i mean it's just so nice to be able to have that technology right there now um in the olden days you know people were asked to well when i was diagnosed as i told you earlier i was you know urinating on a glucose stick Uh, but even the many years we were pricking our fingers and um, and even I'm sure you've come across kids, especially teenagers, don't want to wear anything on their body. What what do you tell these resistant, uh, quote unquote, patients that or what do you tell them about the importance of testing that may motivate them to want to wear a CGM? And I think that's the beauty of it. If someone really wants to wear it, not someone forcing them to wear it like their parents Right, right. And you know, what I've seen is a transition in, in kids, especially in their teenage years, where they're they're going to go through it. Some just, they have to get through that. And um, no matter what you say, no matter what common ground you find that will motivate them, it's not enough. But you have to be okay with it. And you give them everything else to empower them to make sure that they are in as good of a control as they can be at that period of their life. My goal is to make sure that they have longevity. And so if it's a short period of time where they're like, screw it, I just want to take my blood sugar like twice a day, four times a day, whatever, that we, there's an agreement. Um, and I say, that's fine, but you just come see me more frequently. That's it. Do what you need to. Come see me more frequently. And this is the minimum that you have to do per day. Yeah. You know what? That, that, that strategy is so good. I wish many doctors would pick that up, even adult endocrinologists, because you can't shove things down people's throat. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're supportive, eventually they'll come around. Yeah. Um, now, a different technology that's quite popular these days are insulin pumps, even the pumps that communicate with the CGM. What's your feeling towards pumps? And I'm, I'm just guessing, knowing you and seeing what a good doctor you are, you know, different strokes for different folks. But what do you, what do you, what do you say to a parent that says, my kid just came down with type one? When can he get a pump? As soon as possible. Um, again, I like I said, my first thing is learn the basic skill sets. Learn how to take your, uh, prick your finger, take your blood sugar. Um, learn how to dose using a syringe and how to drop the insulin. Once you know that skill set, it doesn't take a long time. I mean, literally you're doing it all the time that first couple of weeks anyway. So in parallel, all these things, especially given what we have now, would I have told them to do that I mean, 10 years ago? Maybe not because we didn't, we weren't where we are now. But now it should start in parallel, get them ready because I think the ability to take the onus off from them, even a little bit, is beneficial 
for the long term, for, for the child's care, the family's like life and their, their microcosm. It's just it's so necessary to decrease that burden any way we can. And that should actually be the goal. Yeah. And, and now we have choices. You know, we, Omnipod that sticks on the outside or a traditional pump with tubing. Well, what do you what do you feel about these hybrid closed loop systems that many of us adults are on? I mean, the minority of tight ones are on it, but there's no question it for me, my it takes away a lot of work I have to do during the day because the pump is giving me insulin when my blood sugar is going up and it reduces insulin and turns off when it's going down, all based on the CGM. So they're talking to each other. Mm-hmm. That's a relatively new thing. And now we have, um, we got four systems to choose from mm-hmm. without getting into the details. Like, what do you think about that for kids? Um a hundred percent. And I mean, that's how I started my research career. I'm a hundred percent because these algorithms have improved. So the algorithms, the computer systems that inform the dosing from these pumps, um, they're smaller, they're better integrated. Um, and now they're available for kids under five. I mean, who knew that that was ever going to happen? Yep. And that is such a, it's a, it's a very hard age to have type one diabetes for a caregiver. Um, because, there's no kid who has, there's no kid who's going to say, I'm going to eat breakfast at eight. I'm going to have lunch at noon yeah. and then I'm going to have dinner at 6 PM. Yeah. And then I'm not going to snack in between and I'm going to eat the same thing every time. There's no kid. I mean, adults can't even do it. So imagine like a toddler doing it. So having those systems available is essential. You know, it's, it's, you know, I know parents who, who of young kids with Taiwan, they, as you know, they worry to death. You know how par- presidents of the United States, they get a lot of gray hair during their presidency, mm-hmm. like Obama, and Biden was already there. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, I think that this kind of stress for parents can be really be relieved with these type of systems. I agree. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's. I think it's a different time. It is. Now, um, you mentioned artificial pancreas. So tell us a little bit about that. I know that you were involved in the pediatric section uh, of the the wing of the study, and there's also an adult study done in Beacon Hill and all those yeah. Boston areas. I trained at the Jawson Clinic. Oh yeah, so, so I actually I joined the team um, at the time that we were conceptualizing the outpatient study. So they had done all the inpatient. I was part of that, but I helped write that first protocol for the what we at that time called the Beacon Hill study. Um, Stephen and I actually because the Holiday Inn. it's the Wyndham now, but the Holiday Inn um, next to Mass General was where we had patients stay. And they stayed for an entire week and we had them hooked up uh, on an IV overnight to take their continuous blood glucose. And and then they were free to roam like a certain perimeter in downtown Boston um, while they had it. But Stephen and I stayed at that hotel for like a month. Um, we alternated. The same room or? No. <laughs> well, you know, just there's asking. boundaries. <laughs> but I did sneak in my dog once in a while um, because I was alone with him. And so, but we did. We had to stay there. And it was an incredible experience because I saw the possibility of what these automated systems can do. Very early, too. Very early. That was the beginning of the whole thing. It was. It was before anything that was actually approved. And before we were so far ahead at that time um, when it came to that. And again, it was bihormonal, right? So there's insulin and there's glucagon. So both are being dosed based on this algorithm to act really like what the pancreas does um, for uh, for patients with type 1. And... um, I'll tell you, we had patients come in. The best story um, is they were like, they knew what they're getting into. They knew what the algorithm does, right? Mm -hmm. They went straight. They literally got hooked up. 
it takes, you know, at that time it was like 18 hours. You wait, it gets acclimated, it gets better and better per hour. And then they went to J.P. Licks, which is the ice cream place down the street. And had I like Baskin six, Robbins or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah. And they had six scoops of ice cream each. And they were told to try to to do anything they want. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to a degree, like keep it normal. But then people are like, no way. I mean, I get this <laughs> thing, and you're monitoring me. Yes, and um, but it was amazing because they saw like they could do it, and they didn't go as high as they typically would. In fact, they didn't even get close to it. And to see that possibility for me, um, I still think about those moments where I was like, I can't believe it. And then we had patients who, once they were done with the clinical trial, so they come uh, stay with us for a week. And then there's also part of it where they do it at home. They didn't want to give it back. People literally would I cry. I wouldn't They either. cried. It was, and that hurt because I was like, I wish I could just send this home with you. But then, you know, I found purpose. I said, this is, I'm going to make this happen some way, somehow. Yeah, well, for our listeners, um, Ed Damiano was sort of the original mastermind behind this, um, and then he started a company called Beta Bionics, yeah. and and we're involved in San Diego in, in some of the multi-center trials, the insulin only. We haven't gotten to the bihormonal part yeah. yet, but for our listeners, it's getting things officially approved by the FDA takes a long time. It does. It does. I mean, you know, drugs, they take... 20, 30 years from like development to clinical trials. I mean, there's so much that goes on in the billion, background couple billion and, and, dollars. and lots of money. And, and the longer, less money you have, the longer it takes. And then with technology like this, it's a long time. I mean, Ed started this because of his son when he was diagnosed, I think at 10 months, 11 months old. And um, he's been at it for a long time to make sure this is there for patients. Um, and it's the best algorithm possible for what they're doing. When I first heard him present, he said he wanted to get this out and available before his kid graduated college. So I saw him like a year ago. I said, Ed, you, you have the oldest kid in college we've ever had. <laughs> but um, well, let's switch to another area that you're heavily involved with now. It's super interesting, regenerative medicine. And that's not a place where you get, you know, facials and back rubs. Um, you know, that, that, when I hear that word re- rejuvenate. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, please explain to us in as lay as you can uh, this whole area and some of the areas that you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the the really interesting parts of, of how I found out about where I work um, at Viasite is through my work at Covance. I met the previous CMO, chief medical officer there, through the work I was doing within the first year I joined that company, Covance. And um, I was like, wait, this is going on? And it, again, not much was... Uh, told to fellows. I mean, it was a, it was a kind of a, a space on its own. We knew about it, but we just didn't learn as much about it at that time because there wasn't a ton that was disclosed. And, but I met Howard and I said, oh my gosh, wait, there's a way to like work on the cure. And one of the reasons I went into endocrinology was to be able to do something completely different to change how we manage. And I said, well, this is definitely something I need to keep up with. And as I went through my years at Covance, kept up with Howard, and then my position came up and I was like, I don't care what I have to do, I'm coming. And uh, again, similar to what I did to Steven, Howard, I need to be there. I need to work on this. And and I did. You're pretty convincing. I mean, you know what? It's, I, I guess I do once, anything you say. Yeah. <laughs> once you show up at someone's door multiple times or send them multiple emails persistently, you know, eventually you're going to get a shot. Um, but you have to back it up a bit. And for me, it was, I have to get this to patients. I can't imagine doing anything else. And so... How long ago was that? Two years ago. No, that was two and a half years ago. Two and a half years. It's yeah. not that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. I yeah. met him seven years ago now. Nope. 
eight years ago. And um, and I was persistent over four years, just kept in touch. We even did a webinar together. Um, and then eventually, uh, as soon as this position came up, and I mean, I knew this is all. I moved my family from Boston to San Diego, um, knowing that and it was disruptive, but it was going to be disruptive for the diabetes world as well. So it's time to do it. Well, tell us a little bit how how this technology works yeah. and, and, and how, you know, what's the promise in this area? Because I know there's a couple... Uh, companies involved. Yep. Your company, your current company, Viaside, joined forces with Vertex, and mm-hmm. and mention even you know the beginning of the Viaside implants, and now uh, on to the CRISPR technology, and how you guys are putting your heads together to to really make this thing happen. I'll be the first in line, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I I want everyone to be in line. I want everyone to get it. Um, but I will say that I I hate using. Uh, the term it's going to be out this you know five years ten years I don't like doing that because it provides false hope, but I think the hope I can say is that there's so many people working on it and we're so close to the next best step. And um, five years ago, I wouldn't even say five years. I would have said ten years. Now I can say we're so close, and especially because there's so many uh, very smart people working in the space um, and and some joining forces, some. Um, finding new ways to do it, right? So what we do in the very basic terms is, um, so the cells in the pancreas are destroyed that make insulin. And what we've developed is a way to make new cells um, through stem cell research into those cells, beta cells. Um, They develop into beta cells and they produce insulin. And we put those in a small device, almost like a tea bag. And that device is then implanted just underneath your skin. Um, several devices, and um, and then we hope to see insulin production. And we do. We have shown this at different conferences, but for the most part, we've seen success um, in the implant itself. Not enough where it's going to get you off insulin, but it drastically changes insulin dosing. But we need to see more. We well, need the, to see much more. Well, the beta cell um, for our listeners, it does more than secrete insulin, as you know. It secretes a hormone called amylin, but it also regulates the secretion based on the second to second minute to minute change in glucose exactly so it's the regulation uh and and production of of insulin so many years ago you know dr pettis and i were involved in the viasite first implantation and they you know these little devices you know as you know they had little porous holes in it to allow blood and nutrients in but not allow the antibodies in so i I always like to explain to people that once you're diagnosed with type one, because of those uh, destructive antibodies that kill the beta cells, they're always there. You can't just get a, a pancreas from your your best friend and you're cured. No, you got to take immunosuppressants, and there's some risk with that, obviously. But um, so those failed, um, and now tell us what's on the next step. Sure. Um, Don't give us any secrets. I, I can't. So, <laughs> well, I'm just well, I know you want you some. To. I know you want some, Steve. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but this is being recorded, so <laughs> um, I, I guess you know the next. So yes, you need immunosuppression, and those are the clinical trials we've actually given data on. Um, but the next step is the work we're doing with CRISPR Therapeutics, and that company is basically finding a way to cloak the cells that we make from the immune system, so it avoids that attack that happens. And what was, um, what was the word you used? Cloak. Cloak. See, so that would be changing it just enough so it's not recognized by yeah. the antibodies, mm-hmm. but still does its typical function. It still does what we've 
Like wearing a cloak? Is that what you're talking about? Basically. You know, like way? it's a Harry Potter reference. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, I love that. I love that. I should have known that. I've heard people say it before. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. Okay, they cloak the beta cells so that they're not recognized by Correct. these antibodies, which are always circulating. They are, and it, and, but they can continue to function. They're just not seen, um, but, but specifically by these very specific antibodies. And so um, that's the next iteration. We've been in clinical trials since early this year. And CRISPR technologies, they, they, a lot of companies work with that technology. They do. Yeah, autoimmune kind of things. Well, I would say this will be my last question. I could speak to you all day. Um, you know, insulin's been around 100 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we have had advancements in technology, but, you know, for where do you see diabetes therapy going in the next 10 years 15 years or even shorter five years you know people have been telling me there's a cure for diabetes i'll get a cure in 10 to 15 years that started in 1970 so i think you're smart by not putting a time frame on it yeah yeah i like what kind of encouraging words of hope you would say all of us living with type one or some of us that have loved ones with type one I'm going to say two different things here. First is um, I can't let this podcast end without thanking the patients um, who participate in any clinical trial to make us get to where we are now. Um, I think it's the it's a thing that we don't do enough of is thanking the participants and their family members. Um, it's it's a burden. It's it's so much that you have to go through. Um, and with us, we have a surgical procedure as well. Um, any type of procedure is a lot. And um, I'm so thankful for those that want to drive this forward. Um, and it's 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 so important to recognize that. And I continue to be awed by this community, which makes me want to be part of it as long as I can to get this to you guys. Now that brings us to a timeline. I'm not going to give you one. But I will say this. Think about what's happened in the last 10 years. Think about the last five years in terms of technology and the changes and the improvements. And it's rapid fire. So from a technological perspective, 10, 20 years, I know we're going to have a bihormonal version. So that means that we're going to have the insulin and glucagon version of closed loop systems. I know that's going to be there within the 10 years time frame for sure. Um, and I never say for sure. I'm a scientist also. Well, for sure, for sure. I mean, <laughs> we, we have clinical trials on we insulin do. only. On our- It's already there. Yeah, it's already there. Yeah. So you just need glucagon and we're pretty much there as well. So I know that within 10 years we're going to have that. But when you think about a functional cure, so this is what I'm talking about, the stem cell research, having cells that are implanted that do what the pancreatic cells do that you've lost. I think that there is, right now we're in a very critical time where- um, the smartest people are working on this. And I think that the science is there um, and the motivation and the, the spotlight. Often it's just getting a spotlight on a therapeutic area. Type 1 never had it in a functional cure perspective because things were just hidden. But now there's so many companies and there's driving people just to work faster and faster. So I think we're getting closer and closer. Um, there's a lot going on. I've seen a lot of uh, success from what I know Viasite started at to where they are. Other companies, uh, Cernova, Vertex, um, even Sema that was acquired by Vertex. It, you don't understand it takes 20 years to get to even clinical trials. There's a, so much scientific work that goes on in the background. And the fact that multiple companies are now in clinical trials is a very, very good thing. We're very close. Yeah, and it's a complicated condition, type 1. Uh, you know, we can we can treat it, but we, we and we know that it's an immunology-based disease, but we really don't know 
how to stop that process. No. And so that's that's the hard part. Our immune system is pretty complicated. Well, uh, Monzi, thank you so much. It's so nice to learn a little bit about how you got into endocrinology and how motivated you are. And I'm really lucky that you're living in San Diego because you can do more things with TCOID, in, including uh, the lecture that you just did that's yeah. going to be aired at our one conference coming up uh, on September 10th. And I'm not sure when this podcast is going to air, but um, it'll always be in our video vault for anybody that wants to watch it. I love all your videos. I encourage everybody listening to go on there. They're so good. Um, they're so engaging. And pass that information along to any family members and patients you know. It's so incredible. I wish this was here when well, I was training. Well, thank you very much. And we'll have you back with Jeremy in town this time. And we'll delve deeper into one of the other topics. Yeah. Thanks so much, Steve. Okay.